this is Bob Wells here and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. In today's show, which is the first part of two episodes, I'm delighted to welcome Ruben Archer, rock musician, author, a self-proclaimed petrol head, former editor of Fast Car magazine and an artist painter. Ruben is the former frontman of the famous early 1980s new wave of British heavy metal band Stampede and then after a gap of 20 years he has continued to write and record albums through to the present day. He has just brought out his autobiography, A Rock and Roller Coaster Ride, which describes his life story so far. In this first episode we talk about Ruben's early life in southwest London. We hear about beatniks, teddy boys, coffee bars and mods and what life was like growing up through the monochrome backdrop of the 1950s through to the Technicolor explosion of the 1960s. Like his book, this interview reveals what life was like as a teenager growing up during a period of fundamental change in society. It's a real social commentary which both fans of rock music and others will I think find very interesting. to the show. Hi, <laughs> how are you doing, Robert? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. And what what a great book! And it really was a real ro- ro- roller coaster ride to read it up and down, up and down. My goodness. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. It was never meant to be a book book about rock and roll. It was meant to be just a. Um, I mean, I can tell you how it started if if you want. Yeah, me please. To. Yeah, yeah. Love uh, you too. Thank you. It about ten years ago, I was talking to someone and they used to keep a diary. Well, I've never yeah. done that. And yeah. um, I just thought, well, I've, I've got these things. These, I've done these things, and but, I, you know, I, I haven't got anything documented about them. So I thought I'll, I'll just write a loose scenario of what, what I've done, you know, from yeah. the, the, the time of leaving school and all that sort of thing. And uh, I started writing it. And because I'm such a technophobe, um, I got I got about a couple of chapters or call them chapters done, and yeah. then lost a lot on my computer. Oh, no. But oh, no. up to that point, my my wife had read it, and yeah. she said, "No, you should do it again. It was it was it was really good." So so I started doing it again, but this time I started really going into quite a lot of detail, yes. and and so it went on for you know I'd do a bit for a couple of days and then it would leave it and then it this went on for months and then years and and I just kept it and didn't lose it again. Yeah. And um and it got to a point about I don't know, about two years ago, where I had what I thought was a pretty good story. And um I got a friend of mine to read it and he said, oh, I really like this. He said, You you should publish this as a book. So Again, I never did anything about it. I just forgot it. I was too busy doing other things because we were recording a lot. I was doing the solo stuff, and and um, and then this COVID thing came along. Yeah, and we were all locked down. So I just thought, well, I'll start clearing up things that you know I've never finished, and cleared up a few paintings. Did this and did that. I couldn't do any more recording because. In fact, we we were in the studio at the time, but we just had to stop. Yeah. So I thought, oh, started looking at the book again, and uh, I'm great at coming up with things 
like when I ran the magazine, I could write stuff and relate it all okay. But yeah. my grammar, written grammar, is pretty bad. I mean, I hated school, so I never really learned anything. And um, but I'm lucky to have a friend called Rod- Roger Faust, and yeah. he he um, he is pretty good at uh, English, <laughs> and um, he started editing it. And then my wife went through it as well, and we finally got it to some kind of um, cohesive sort of uh, situation, you know, um, situation. And then Roger went through it one more time, and then he helped me uh, get it printed. And that, then we decided not to try and get a publishing deal or anything like that. Not that I would have, I suppose. You know, there's so many people at it. Um, I just thought I'd do it off my websites, and um, we announced it, shoved it on Facebook and all the rest of it, and yeah. o- ordered up a couple of hundred, and within two weeks that they'd all gone. Uh, I have to say, have, having just read the book, Ruben, um, what I would say for listeners is, is that, you know, when, when you first think of yourself, you think, oh, rock music and that. But actually, the, the rock music element of it, it's heavily in there, but it's not the majority of it. Um, so no. many other facets in, in your life, um, which are fantastic to talk about and interesting to hear, um, which, which made it a really interesting read. And the other thing I liked about it, um, which suits the way I read, is, is that the chapters are reasonably short. Um, you know, you, you can read a couple, put it down, go back to it and all that sort of thing. Um, I really <laughs> well, enjoyed it. Yeah, well, um, thank you for that. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear. And uh, I haven't actually had one bad comment about it at all. I mean, everybody seems to have said, you know, things like, oh, they can't put it down and all the rest of it. And you, you think, oh, yeah, they're just saying that. But, I mean, that many people uh, aren't going to just make that up, are they? No, no, and, no. Uh, and and. I, I think, sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's important to say, for me, um, it's a big social commentary on growing up in the 1950s, 1960s and everything. I, I, I was sort of a little boy in the 60s. Mm. And to me, um, now when I look at the 60s, I sort of think of the Mini, the World Cup, Batman, Tarzan, and all that sort of stuff. And it's a very colourful time. And when I look back at the 50s, um, it seems very black and white. What was it like sort of, um, you know, li- living through those times? Um well, yeah, okay, I was probably about 12, 14, um, and my parents, who, uh, bless them, they're, they're no longer with us, but um, they were, they, my father grew up in a Presbyterian um, background, church background, and, and so did his father, and they were deeply religious and my mother came from the country. She was born down in Sussex. Um, and I don't think her side of the family were. But anyway, they, they both seemed to be immersed in this going to church and stuff. And, and I used to have to go. And um, I didn't really take it seriously, but I just had to do it. And yeah. it just gets ingrained into you, doesn't it? You just do it and believe all this yeah. stuff. And so I grew up like that, and so I couldn't do anything. And on top of that, my father was head of Kingston Art School. So, yeah. and I would, he got me moved from Twickenham Art School to there uh, so I could progress because I wasn't at Twickenham. And uh, so I couldn't do anything. And you were living in this time in the 50s where 
everybody was a beatnik and they were all going out, you know, doing the things that beatniks do and yeah. enjoying things and the kind of music, which I didn't like, traditional jazz and all. Um, but but um, I couldn't do any of it because my, my dad was the boss watching me all the time. And then at home I got this church thing going on. And, and so the only way I could do anything was to actually – skive off and do it without anybody knowing so i would go out and pretend i was going to the church youth club on a when it whatever night it was and i'd go down to a place in teddington called the lockway club which was yeah. full of drape jacketed teddy boys and fights and god knows what else and and i'd keep that secret and i did that for a year or so and then it got to a point where I just didn't get on with my dad at all. I mean, he'd go to art school walking on one side of the road and I'd go the other, get on the bus. I'd go upstairs and have a cigarette. He'd be downstairs and I, we'd, you know, he didn't smoke. And it went on like that for about two years until it got to the point where I couldn't stand it any longer. And I left home, which is all yes. in the book. Yes, and, yes. And, and finally went to sea. But the yes. thing about the 50s was um, it was kind of emerging all this new stuff um, yeah. through the rock and roll and through what people were hearing on the radio because up to then all you'd ever had was sort of crooners and awful sort of, uh, I can't even remember, Dickie Valentine and all these people. Yeah. And then um, gradually this, this, this American rock and roll thing was creeping in. And, of course, yeah. we had the American bases that were bringing it over as well. And things began to change, but it was all very staid. I yeah. mean, when you see those old Cliff Richard films, you know, it's all kind of very nice. No, you know, nobody swore and nobody did yeah. anything out of it. And yeah. then the moment it got into the 60s, it just completely changed. I mean, yes. it, 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 it almost like a couple of months, it changed. Oh, um, really? And it, it, within a couple of months? It seemed to me that that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it was purely because, you, well, I remember being in a classroom at the first art school I was with, and this girl, she had a, a, a portable record player, and um, something had gone wrong, so we couldn't do any work. And she put on this Elvis Presley, uh, 78, and um, we listened to that. I think it was uh, Heartbreak Hotel. And uh, everyone was just freaking out. What the hell is this? You know. Yeah. And I, I said, so, it was so new, I guess. Yeah, that's the first yeah. time, apart from what I'd heard on the radio, and the first thing I ever heard was Little Richard. Um, yeah. Oh wow! And I heard that on a crystal set. You oh, know, yeah. yeah. When you tuned into Radio Luxembourg, and it would come yeah. and go. You, you, my my dad may be one of those crystal sets. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I bought one off. I don't know where it was. Some magazine advertising the back of it. It was like a little rape invitation. But, um, yeah, so it seemed to me that once Presley was sort of easy to to access and people yeah. heard it and it started to get onto the radio, that's when it all changed. Yeah. And, um, you know, you had the Teddy Boy thing, which, which was huge at the time. I mean, they were killing each other on the streets and – uh, the, the music, and then you started to get the tours that went round the cinemas, theatres, by Larry Parnes, who put about twenty guys together, all with silly names: Billy Fury, 
and all this sort of yeah. stuff. And so yeah. then it was in, the, it was like in the shops and people could buy it and go to it. And that's when it all kicked off. Uh, yeah. But the problem was at art school, you'd got half the people were into sort of uh, traditional jazz, which I can stand. And, um, and, and then we, there was a kind of switch where we were all going to coffee bars and then the coffee bars changed and the one in Richmond, particularly called La Berge, um, everybody there, we'd all go to Eel Pie Island on a, on a, on a Saturday night. Yes. And, and that, and it was traditional jazz, but all of a sudden that stopped and you got people like Alex's Corner and Cyril Davis taking yeah. over. And yeah. then that's where the R&B thing, what I call R&B anyway, that came in yeah. and, um, then the whole, that was the beginning of the 60s, and then the whole thing really started to build. And, yeah. uh, of course, you got the emergence of the stones through that, yeah. and, and and then it, it just went mad. It's fascinating in your book where, where you, you sort of mentioned you were with Eric Clapton and, mm. you know, you, you, you would see Mick Jagger. I mean, I guess at the time, it, that, that was what was happening. It, a very well, exciting time. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it, it wasn't exciting. It was just... Um, at the point at the time, because yeah. we were all just art students. I mean, Jagger oh. was at the London School of Economics. Um, all the rest of them were just bumming around doing nothing. Um, and we'd go to Ealing Jazz Club, which was like 20 minutes on the ch- tube. Um, and we'd go there on a Friday and see Alex's Corner. And that's where yeah. Jagger and um, the rest of them, or the, uh, Brian Jones, got up yeah. and uh, jammed and all that sort of thing. There was no Rolling Stones at the time. Um, and then J- Jagger would come to uh, Richmond and, and you know, the, there was a house in Richmond where everybody stayed, Q Road, and a, a kind of uh, a kind of like a closely knit bunch of people of uh, art students and so forth all got together and that was the scene but nobody at that point was famous because nothing had happened um it was only when uh, the r&b scene started to really take off and people we we started going to the marquee on a thursday night the rickety and all these other places that's when it all started to buzz underneath and and then somebody you know that the stones I don't know whether I put this in the book, but uh, we used this this coffee bar we used to go to, which is on at the top of Richmond Bridge on the hill. My girlfriend yeah. worked in there, and we used to go in there and, and sit around playing guitars and stuff. And the, the guy that owned it used to say, "Look, I'm trying to sell burgers and stuff here. This is a restaurant. Um, I don't mind you, but I can't." You're taking up all the room, all the tables. So he hired a little um, church hall just up this road between the Odeon Cinema and, and his restaurant. And he said, Sandover Hall, it was called. And he said, um, right, you can go in there on a Saturday night. I've paid for it. And you can play to whatever you want, do whatever you want, and stay out of my restaurant <laughs> the, on a Saturday and a Friday. So I went up there with Eric and yeah. a, um, a guy called Johnny Van Stone and uh, various other people. And we just had acoustic guitars and we just used to play blues and stuff like that. And um, 
it, it got to the point where it was pretty full and girls would make coffees and people would bring some beers in and stuff. And it got to a point where it was, it was only a tiny place and it yeah. was rammed. And Eric said, well, they can't hear us. You know, what we're playing, they can't hear it. Because so this we was were, just on acoustic guitars. Yeah. So, yeah. so we went over to Ealing Jazz Club because we yeah. knew, uh, we knew that Jagger and, uh, Brian were there and Keith and, um, they'd got gear. So Eric said, I'm going to borrow their gear and we, we, we'll play, we'll be able to be heard. And, um, I never knew quite how he was going to do that because at the time he didn't have an electric guitar. So, um, anyway, the Saturday night arrives and the Stones turn up because they had a car. They weren't the Stones. Um, Jagger turns up and they bought this, these amps and stuff. Yeah. Only they didn't let us play. They played. Oh. And, um, there was a guy there called Andy Gromowski. And he used to run the station hotel opposite Richmond Station. And yeah. he, he had a band in there called the Dave Hunt Five, I think it was, or somebody like that. And it, it was kind of big band stuff, uh, yeah. verging on old-style rockabilly to what we now, now got to know as R&B, saxophones, Hammond, all that kind of stuff. And um, he, he knew that what wasn't what was emerging and, what he saw with the stone, with Jagger and Keith Richards and that, that night, he, he obviously thought this is going to be the thing. And he talked to them and um, got them to go down to the station hotel and they became the resident musicians. And he told them to get a name, rehearse, form a proper band. And that's yeah. exactly what they did. And so they were the resident band at the, at the, at the uh, it was called the Craw Daddy, and um, it got to the point it got so big that in the end the pub was bursting at the seams, and yeah. the uh, brewery said, "This is too dangerous. You're going to have to move this." And they moved it across the road to the uh, rugby ground, Richmond Rugby Ground, and yeah. um, that became what was known as the the Craw Daddy Club. Um, it, it was a big concrete building underneath the, uh, the sports uh, stadium. And it was just ran with about a thousand people every Sunday yeah. night. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, 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 water, the sweat was running down the bloody walls. It was that hot. And, and, and then they did their first single and it took off. And yeah. I remember them turning up in a Vauxhall Cresta, you know. Um, yeah, I remember that. And it, and, and they, we thought, well, that's it. That now they made it and they had. And then, um, Eric took over that gig with the Yardbirds and, yeah. um, that went on for a bit until they made a record. And then, well, you know, the rest is, yeah. is history. I, like I say, it must have been a fascinating time to, to go through. Probably, you know, at the time that was what happened. But but looking back now, um, you know, the names and everything is quite incredible. Well, you're you're right in that. Having said, which I never thought of it that way before, but you're absolutely right. The fifties were black and white. You know, it was like a black and white film to me, which they were then. Yeah. And um, and then all of a sudden, everything went into technicolor, as they called it, and it and it all sort of 
flowered out in the in in, in the sixties and. Yeah, it, it, that's yeah. exactly what it was like. And and I, I think it was an interesting time because um, my parents were, I mean, where they were brought through the wars as kids, teenagers mm. and everything. Um, but then these sort of 1950s, early 1960s teenagers came. It was the advent of the teenager, wasn't it, really? Yeah. It was easy to, re- to be a rebel in those days um, because, well, li- you know, life was becoming very different, wasn't it? Well, it was the only, <laughs> if you wanted a life at all as, as a kid... The, the only way he could do it was by being a rebel because everything you wanted to do was going to be breaking the rules and the mould of the, your parents. Yeah. They just didn't get it. And, you know, it was rock and roll. My father told me on many, on so many occasions because he used to sit. He was a classic. I mean, he was a famous artist. He, he, yeah, he, he was famous in his own right, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, paint, he painted orchestras and music was his thing. And yeah. they, my sister and I had to sit in our house listening to Mozart played at God knows how many decibels, and my father was going <laughs> deaf. And yeah. um, to me, it, it just drove me mad. So the only way you could get anything done or do anything yeah. was, yeah. like you say, be a rebel. And and the other interesting thing is, and it comes across in the book, is is that um, your love for your parents was was amazing. You know, you love them to bits. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you, yes, you rebel, but you would do it at, at that time. And I think um, my my feeling was that you you got into the merchant navy, which is another interesting story. Uh, the whole, you know, the, you were there three years, weren't you? In the, in yeah, the yeah. That that was your sort of almost sort of national service at the time, wasn't it? You got away from things, would you say? Yeah, well, 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 it wasn't national service in in such that you were no. ordered, ordered about and all that. No, 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 no. But but it was, it it was a very popular thing to do, for people yeah. who just were sick of not getting anywhere, uh, not being able to do what they wanted to do on dry land. I mean, the only thing that you could do go and sign. You could do it so easily. It was easy for me at the time. Um, because normally you'd have to go to catering school and you're going to be a steward or deckhand. You'd have to go to, I don't, I don't know what it was, but, um, I, I got in when just before there was a strike. So, um, yeah. I didn't have to do any of that. And lucky enough to get a, a reference to say that I was a silver service waiter, which I wasn't, <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, that comes it, across in the book. Very, very, it's a very amusing tale. How you got that. <laughs> but, but, we, we 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 just those those channels op- yeah. were, were open to you in those days. Uh, yeah. They're not anymore. No, they're not. Are they? no. So no. It, 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 and and I, all, you know, I'd never been anywhere. It's so, a great way of seeing the world. Yeah, was well, so waking up in Canada. It was yeah. was I just it was just I might as well have been on the moon. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So that was an interesting tale in Canada, um, where there, there was gunfire with police and, and people. That, that must have been quite scary. Well, it, <laughs> we were we were absolutely terrified. It was, yeah. I, because you know, you, I, I think I, I, I was probably about seventeen, late seventeen, coming on to eighteen or something like that. And I wasn't very worldly wise at all, being a, living in a, in the type of home that I've described to you. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I knew nothing about real life. Uh, you know, if you'd said certain things to me that are just run of the mill to that, I would have been shocked out of my. So, you know, we're, there we are and a couple of thousand miles away from home in a totally different alien land. And we, I've been seeing these deckhands on the ship, you know, 
big guys with massive great knives on their belts and I it was all very romantic and yeah. I thought I'm going to get one of those and and uh, the guys I was yeah we'll get them you know and we we saw these shops where they got guns in the window and and sort of uh, knives and also you could just go in and buy them and um so we 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 went into this shop. We couldn't get a drink because we weren't old enough. We didn't even know that was going to happen. You had to be twenty-one, and we were all too young. So we had nothing to do. So we're just walking around. And the other thing was, it wasn't like at home. The shops were still open at nine o'clock at night, and it was like um, it was it was freezing cold. So we had to get in off the streets, and uh, and so we went into this shop, and I I I, I ordered a one of these great big Bowie knives about a foot long, and so did one, one of the other guys. And um, as, we were, as we were just about to come out the shop, there's a tremendous crash, and one of the windows just smashed. And, and then there was a, this banging, and the guy I was with said, that's gunfire. Wow. And, the, and the guy kicked us out the shop, pulled down all the shutters, and there we were on the sidewalk, and this car's screaming across the center reservation and they came to rest literally half a meter from where we were. We couldn't go anywhere. And the police were telling us to get down. And yeah. this guy came running across, jumped across the reservation and you're not allowed to do that. That's called jaywalking. You get, you get done for that in Canada. Right. And, yeah. um, and they just sat down, knelt across the bonnet of the car with a gun and as the guy ran across, he just shot him twice. And the guy, the guy fell on the floor and was screaming, don't, don't shoot anymore. And he managed to get to the police and hold his hands up. And the guy just flipped over his gun and hit him around the head with it. And that was it. He was knocked down. And, and it, then there was kind of like about the whole thing only happened probably 10 minutes. And, yeah. um, the ambulances came and, and, and then within, literally 10 minutes it was all done and dusted and gone yeah. and uh, we just seen this and we yeah. just and i went back in the shop and said i don't want this knife um can, can, could i change it you you've seen enough violence for for the for the night I absolutely yeah and then <laughs> and i've changed it for a little transistor radio yeah and a tea set for my sister little bone china tea set and uh, which she says i never gave to her which is uh, to this day, um, she thinks it came from somewhere else. But um, I had this little transistor radio, and we used to have it in the, on the ship. And while we were in Canada, because I did that trip about five times, and um, you could hear it, the, 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 the news bulletins every sort of a quarter of an hour. And yeah. um, the, this was... This on that particular night, because I had this radio, it came over the news about the guy, and um, in Montreal, it, yeah. it was all localized, and uh, I don't know what happened to him, whether he lived or died, but every time we went to Canada, there was uh, reports of the hockey stocking gang uh, holding up a garage, shooting some, you know. So it was very, very violent, and I was actually told by a guy. I can't remember who it was, a, a, a French-Canadian. He said that Montreal at that time was as bad as Chicago had been back back in the 30s. So, um, yeah, I mean, everywhere you went, 
in the world. It was violent. It was nothing like we we knew at home. You know, <laughs> it was you were it was completely alien to us. No, they, I mean, there's, that's just one story in the book, which which I found quite incredible. Really, how, how you how you saw that violence in the space of sort of ten minutes and everything. Yeah, and the first time I'd ever been out of England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, amazing. Um, so when you when you got back, um, you started getting into cars in a big way. Yeah, well, 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 I'd always been into cars. When I was about five, my my father made me this garage, beautiful garage, which looked like a nineteen thirties Art Deco garage, and yeah. um, he it, it, it was I loved it, and uh, I had little little uh, you know dinky toys and stuff like that, and petrol pumps, yeah. and I played with it all the time, and yeah. um, and so and my uncle. My mother's, uh, my uh, my father's wa- uh, sister married a guy uh, in Hampton Hampton Park because they all came from Eastbourne and Brighton, and yes. um, he he was a he was a mechanic. He and he had a garage, and uh, you know, doing repairs on cars and stuff like that. And his son was into cars, and he got into racing. So I'd go with them. And they'd yeah. take me on a weekend to Goodwood, which was pretty near, not far from Eastbourne. And I, I remember sitting on the bank, yeah, watching Fangio, um, Mike Hawthorne, Sterling Moss racing, yeah. uh, and that was Formula One as it was then. Yeah, and sitting behind a straw bale with nothing else to to to, to protect you, or just just next to the road. Yeah, right next to it. You you could literally sit a couple of meters away from the track, wow. and these things were going past you. There was no safety, no. and we did that for probably until I was about eight. Uh, from the time I was five till eight, and then my dad moved to London because he got the the better job at Kingston Art School, and um, so so I didn't do that anymore. But I grew up in uh, surrounded by people who uh, work with cars yeah. and it kind of rubbed off on me. And yeah. then I, while I was at art school, I started sending off to all the American manufacturers, Chevrolet and Dodge and all these people for brochures saying that I wanted to buy one. And yeah. uh, I was in England and you wanted and, to buy one. Yeah. I, I told <laughs> them I was in the market for one and, um, <laughs> and I'd, I'd have it sent over. Yeah. And so please, could you send me the brochures on your best models? Oh. And there was a there was a a showroom in Twickenham who actually imported Nash Fraser Nash, and um, I think it was Fraser Nash. But um, so they sent me these things. So I had this like box file full of these fantastic airbrushed brochures, you know, with these beautiful yeah. drawings of cars, and um, and it it just became an obsession. And um, I never saw one. Until it got to that time, I went to Kingston um, to see Cliff Richards and the Shadows, and yeah. and I saw him come out and jump into a, a Firebird, a, a, Ford, a Thunderbird, yeah. uh, with with this girl, and they drove off to Richmond. And that you know, to me, yeah. I, I got to have one of those. And so I that, that up, was that was that was Cliff Richard driving. No, he didn't drive. The girl was driving. Ah, right. Okay. He just ran down the steps of the. Yeah. They'd done a sound check, I guess, and um, yeah. And he 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 came out and he ran across the road 
and he didn't even open the door. He just jumped over it. Jumped it. Oh, so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, she was all kind of ponytail and, and they, yeah, and it, that was the night the Shadows gave us tickets to get in. And yeah. it, 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 you know, it, it was, that was, to me, that was the start of everything, seeing that concert. And the other thing that happened in the 60s was the, uh, I think it was the 60s, when you went to Jersey. Oh, yeah. And, and you, you got into business, uh, or you, you, you helped get into business by making <laughs> sort of 60s clothes like loons yeah and yeah like that. But, well, yeah and you, how long were you in jersey for well um we went there because we were i'd just come back from spain with a yeah. aborted six-day trip with no money and uh and we were i'd fallen out with my girlfriend who i lived with so i couldn't live with her and, yeah. she, and we well that she was putting me up because i got nowhere to go in richmond and uh and we were all, there were about 10 of us, all mods. Um, and some of them were qualified. Some of them were just <laughs> bumming about. Yeah. And we were just fed up with it. And we we just had a rather nasty confrontation with a bunch of guys where uh, it was all a bit dangerous and things. We've just fed up. And we just said, yeah. somebody came up with the idea of Jersey going to get oh yeah there were two guys that brothers that we knew part of this group they were aircraft mechanics and they were yeah. qualified and they worked they, they worked at Heathrow and um, they said we've got jobs we're going to we're going to Jersey uh, we're going to live out there and we thought well, well that, that sounds good so we'll go so there were about 10 of us and we just went and, and we got limited amount of money and uh, they, some of them got jobs, and we we did all sorts of devious things by uh, renting a bed and breakfast, and then come twelve o'clock at night, six of us would all pile in, and then, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it just got to a point one day where I I I I was running out, of, well I didn't have any money. Uh, I think I had enough to get a coffee and a pack of cigarettes, and I was just sitting on this this square called uh, Columbia in uh, St. Helia. It was a lovely sunny day. And I saw this shop, which looked like a typical uh, King's Road sort of clothes emporium. And I saw this girl walk out of it with a miniskirt about as long as a belt. And uh, I thought, well, I'll go and see what's going on. And I went in and started looking around and the guy asked me, what I wanted and I spoke to him he said oh you you come from London don't you got a London accent so I said yeah and we got talking and it turned out his the guy that was making his trousers um he'd got caught on dealing drugs and um sent back to the mainland and the other thing was if you were caught on the street at night and the police frisked you and you didn't have any money, then you were classed as a vagrant, and they sent oh, you right. back to the mainland. Oh, right. So I had to do something. Yes. And he, this guy said he needed someone. Did I know anybody who could do this, cut out these trousers and sew them up? Well, I'd done this job cutting out babies' nappies, <laughs> you know, by, by the thousand. So I knew how to do that. Yeah. 
So I just said, yeah, I, I, I can do that. That's what I did in London. I made up some story. And uh, anyway, he bought it and said, okay, well, we'll try it for a couple of weeks, see how you get on. You get a flat with it, a couple of rooms up above the shop, which was great because I didn't know anywhere to live and it wasn't going to cost me anything. The, and, I, and I started doing it. But the only problem is I was okay at cutting out the patterns and sort of tacking them up ready to be sewn. But I wasn't a good seam, seamster, you know. No. Uh, and, yeah. and, and then about that, that night or the night after, I met this girl in one of the clubs. Yeah. And it turned out that's what she did. And so I, I said, um, that I've got this situation and she needed yeah. a job. So I said, I'll cut them out. You, you sew them up. And that's exactly what happened. So that's how you got your business. Yeah. And we just started making, uh, and because I was into surfing and I used to go yeah. down every night and I, I bought a surfboard and I, I used to go down and I was taught how to surf by these Aussies and, um, and they came over for the uh, they had championships out there, and um, and they they taught me how to do it. I wasn't very good. Um, that must uh, be a great time. Yeah, and they they all want. Well, what I did was I made myself some surf trunks. The kind of yeah. long trunks that come down to your knees, like people wear now, actually. And um, but I did them in this kind of floral pattern, which was all the go then, wasn't it? You know, sort of. Yeah. flower power and all that stuff was that ty- times of tie-dye and all that yeah yeah i remember that i, yeah. had, I had a little t-shirt with the title your mum made me one yeah. I, insi- I insisted i had my thanks go to today's guest ruben archer ruben and i continue our conversation in the next episode when we hear about ruben's career in music and especially his band stampede I really enjoyed this conversation and I can thoroughly recommend Ruben's book. Details are in the show notes. It's a great read. If you expect a book about rock music, you get that. However, it really is so much more. A real social commentary of the changing times. Or so aptly put by Bob Dylan, the times they are a-changing. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I would be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best.